good to see you all here on this nice spring day, right? Uh, and I say that to say that, you know, our buildings with heat, if it gets too warm in here, just if you're by a window, open it up, and uh, that's perfectly fine. Um, we don't usually plan for summer in December, but nevertheless, uh, that's where we are. Well, open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 7. That's where we are for today. We're going to look at the rest of 7, starting at verse 24, end of 7, and all of chapter 8. While you're opening to that, I want you to think about what does it mean to say that you are a disciple of Christ? What is a disciple of Christ? What does that mean? I remember the first time that I was faced with that question. I was in college. I had been a Christian for a few years. And on campus, there were a number of students who talked about discipleship, but in a way that just felt really, really wrong. I couldn't at first put my finger on why it was wrong, but it just, something about it felt really wrong. Uh, For example, they thought that a disciple was someone who had to follow all these rules. A disciple for them, uh, their goal was to get 12 people following them, because after all, that's what Jesus did. So if you're going to have Jesus follow Jesus, you have to have 12 people following you. And I knew the disciple leader, and I knew some of the people who he were discipling, and I knew that their lives were miserable. They felt controlled, uh, manipulated. It was basically a cult, and they were trying and always failing to live up to this standard. At the same time in my life, I also knew people who claimed to be Christians, but discipleship for them was much, much, much less intense. Jesus occupied some kind of place on Sunday mornings, most of the time, not during exam time, of course, or when anything else was fun, or, you know, whenever they didn't feel like it. Basically, they never did anything inconvenient for Jesus. Discipleship cost them nothing. Now, clearly, both views there were wrong, but but what's right? Friends, I wonder if you've considered um, where you get your idea of of discipleship from. When you think of a disciple, what, what informs that? Or let me back up and ask a more basic question. Are you a disciple? Would you affirm that? If you, if I asked if you were a Christian, most of you would probably say yes. If you're not, let me just say I'm glad you're here. I pray that this service will help you understand more about what it means to follow Jesus, and we'd love to answer any of your questions afterwards. But if you are here as a Christian, well, you probably affirm being a Christian. Would you affirm being a disciple as well? If not, why? What if I told you that the Bible actually doesn't understand any category for a Christian who is not also a disciple. In the book of Acts, the Christians are all called disciples. And when Jesus leaves the world in his physical body, what does he say? He tells the disciples to go and make disciples of all nations. Christians are called disciples. This thing we call the church is made up of disciples. Those who identify with Christ publicly as part of his body. So we need to understand what being a disciple actually is. And the good news for us is this passage today in the book of Mark fleshes that out for us. And we will see that it confronts both of these wrong ideas of discipleship. Now the passage is quite long. It consists of eight stories, mini stories really. And, you know, there's a ton we could learn in each, in each of the stories. We could pull out all kinds of things from each story individually. 
But what I'm going to do is I'm just going to kind of run through all the stories pretty quickly and try to let us see the grand narrative arc. What's the thread that ties all of these together? That's going to be the goal. And let me just tell you what we're going to see here. We're going to see that discipleship is all about the person of Christ, being with the person of Christ. Discipleship is not first a program. It's not a plan. It's about entering into a transformative relationship with the person of Christ. So when you think of discipleship, the first thing you shouldn't think is, what do I do? The first thing you should think is, who am I with? Namely, Jesus Christ. Okay, so that's the the background. Let's jump into these eight stories. Story number one, Mark chapter 7, verse 24. I'm not going to read the whole passage. I'll just sort of refer to the verses as I go along so you can... You can keep your Bibles open and notice the verses as well. Make sure I get the stories right. Uh, Mark chapter 7, verse 24. Jesus goes into the region of Tyre and Sidon, and there he meets a woman who wants Jesus to cast the demon out of, his, out of her daughter. And you got to realize that this is one of the most unlikely candidates. This woman is one of the most unlikely candidates to ever have a religious teacher, you know, give her the time of day, really. Uh, and that's for three reasons. First, she's a woman, and of course, that doesn't make her inherently inferior, but you have to realize in that context, from a religious perspective, her being female would have, would have set her at a disadvantage. The Pharisees uh, did, did prided themselves on how little contact they would have with the opposite sex. Of course, that's not so, so for Jesus. He interacts all the time with women, but in that culture, she would have naturally been at a disadvantage. Second, she's Gentile. And not just any Gentile, she is from the region of Tyre and Sidon. And historians tell us that this is a place where the paganism of the time would have been the most intense. This is where they would have seen the most blatant disregard for God. Um, These cities also sided against Israel in the last war that they had. So um, these people are the enemies. If you want an example, think of how some Americans are thinking about Muslim immigrants right now, and then just like multiply that by 10. That's what this woman represented to uh, the Jewish people. Third, she has a daughter who has an unclean spirit. Now, now parents, if you think your children embarrass you now, uh, imagine having one with a demon inside you. I can guarantee you would not get one of those my child is an honor student stickers on the back of your car. And she comes to Jesus rather boldly requesting that he cast the demon out of, uh, his, out of her daughter. And, and notice what Jesus does. Verse 27, he gives her a kind of parable. Verse 27, he says, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Hmm. Now, if that sounds a bit harsh, that's because it is. Jesus is being harsh with her, but he's got a goal. He wants to lead her around to faith. Let me explain. This woman is a Gentile, and Gentiles were called dogs. um, And it was meant to be disrespectful. They were often living horribly immoral lives. When Paul says in in, um, Philippians, rather, beware of dogs, he's talking about the idea of Gentiles being dogs. Interesting, though, he's not referring to the Gentiles. But anyway, the Gentiles were called dogs. And Jesus has also made the point throughout his ministry that he has come first to the Jewish people, to the nation of Israel. He's the Savior for Israel. 
He's coming to them first. And, and so Jesus is saying to this woman, I've not come for you. But interestingly, he doesn't really call her a dog outright. In the Greek text, the dog is the diminutive form. So it's kind of like he's saying doggy or maybe puppy or something like that. that. That's what he's saying to her. And notice how she responds. Verse 28. Yes, but even the dogs or the puppies eat the children's crumbs. I can visualize what's going on here because I grew up with, with a family of dogs and a lot of kids. And the dogs know they wouldn't eat at the table, but they get pretty close because they congregate around the children and the children would you know, inevitably pass them food along the way. So, so this woman is saying, okay, okay, I'm not the first people you've come for, but at least, at least let the food pass from the children to me. I can, I'm a dog, okay? I'm going to be a dog right next to the children, and I want some of that food too. And, and Jesus says in verse 29, the way he responds to that was something like, wow, what a statement. He's impressed by this woman. And then he responds, go your way, the demon has left your daughter. Now, why is Jesus so impressed by this woman? And we have to understand this if we're going to make sense of the rest of these stories. Well, the answer here is that this woman is the first person in the history of Jesus' miracles, or Jesus' ministry, to get one of Jesus' parables. And that's saying something. Because the, the Pharisees, they don't get his parables at all. But even the disciples, Jesus shares a parable. And what are the disciples like? They're like, I don't get it. The sower, the seed, can you explain it for me? This woman, from the very beginning, understood one of Jesus' parables. And, and she got it. She recognizes right away that the parable assigns her an inferior position. It, it, it assigns her the position of an outsider. But she recognizes in this parable that there's a way to come in. She's a doggy. She, she can come in that way. Notice she doesn't say, if I'm not given the same kind of treatment that I, that I get, you give the other people, I'm going to find a different Messiah. She doesn't say that. There is no other Messiah. If she wants the demon cast out of her daughter, this is the only way to do it. But even more than that, she is ready to receive any grace she can from him. This reminds me of Psalm 84. I would rather be a doorkeeper, that's a low position, in the house of my God, than dwell in the tents of the wicked. Friends, the other thing she did here is that not only does she understand the parable, she then answers Jesus within the parable, according to the parable. She answers Jesus according to the place the parable assigns her. And the irony of this story is that even though she's an outsider, Uh, she has come in. She has become, in some sense, a true disciple. And this woman sets the standard of discipleship for the rest of this section. Okay, so story number two, chapter 7, verse 31. Jesus is coming back from Tyre and Sidon, and he sees a man who is deaf and has a speech impediment. And the people beg Jesus to heal him. And what we see here is not Jesus being uh, uh, harsh. We see, rather, he is having all the compassion in the world. He, he takes this guy aside, which is compassionate, because he's probably used to being a public dis- spectacle in all things he does. And, and then Jesus is really physical with him. He, he, Jesus sticks his fingers in his ear, spits on the guy's 
spits on his hand and touches the guy's tongue. And then he looks up to heaven and he says, be opened. And his ears are opened. His tongue is free. And the man spoke and heard. And everybody goes away astonished. Now, now what do we see here? Well, we see that Jesus enters this guy's world. Jesus doesn't speak to the guy. Why? Because he's not going to hear him. Instead, Jesus kind of creates this sign language of sorts to communicate to the guy, I'm there with you. I'm for you. It's such a personal interaction. Now, hold this story in your mind because I want to explain more and then we're going to come back to it. Story number three. So we've seen first two stories, the woman with the daughter and then the, uh, the, the man who's deaf and, uh, and dumb. Chapter 8, verse 1. A great crowd gathers around Jesus to hear his teaching. And they've been with Jesus for three days, and they don't have any food. Naturally, by this time, they are what? Really hungry, right? Now, just for a second, think about that level of devotion. They're willing to do without food for three days to hear Jesus. Friends, that poses a challenge to us, right? Are we, do we want Jesus' teaching that much? Maybe you're here thinking, I'm getting pretty hungry. The sermon should be over soon. Well, no, I've got two and a half more days to go. Actually, uh, <laughs> do we want to hear Jesus' teaching that much? And now, the, dis- the disciples ask a question, verse 4. How can one feed these people in this desolate place? Now, you've got to love the disciples because they rarely miss a chance to look really dumb right? Because what did Jesus just do a couple chapters ago? He fed 5,000 people, right? Now, there are some scholars who don't actually think this feeding of the 4,000 is a separate incident, and their grounds for doing that is because is that surely the disciples could not have been that stupid as to have forgotten what Jesus did, except the point of this story is the disciples were that stupid. And what happens here in this passage, we see that Jesus feeds the 4,000 people with fish and bread, and they take up 12 baskets afterwards. And the point of this story is that the guys here are a bit slow. They've been with Jesus a long time. They've got a front row seat to his ministry, and they still don't get who he really is. And we're supposed to understand this in contrast to the woman who was with Jesus only a very short period of time and understood perfectly well what Jesus intended and got it. Okay, story number four, chapter 8, verse 11. The Pharisees come and begin to argue with Jesus, seeking from him, it says in verse 11, chapter 8, verse 11, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Now you might think, and you should think, what more could these guys want? Jesus has been doing miracle after miracle after miracle. He just fed 4,000 people. He made a deaf-mute guy hear and speak. And you also have to realize that nobody back then is disbelieving the miracles. The Gospels were not written long after these events actually occurred. If these events were made up, certainly we would see a lot of literature at the time saying things like, no, 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 that's not what happened. It wasn't 4,000 people. It was 40, and they snuck in bread from outside. We would see these counter-narratives that have a different explanation. Logically, if these things didn't happen, that's what we would see. But we don't see any of that in history. Everyone believed these miracles actually happened, including the Pharisees. But for the Pharisees, that's not good enough. They're asking for a sign on their own terms. Notice that they're a sign to test him. In other words, the Pharisees want to stand in authority over Jesus. 
They want to come up with the terms of the test, and then they want to be the final judge and arbitrator as to whether or not Jesus passed the test. And friends, this is the epitome of unbelief. The Pharisees here stand in stark contrast to the woman, right? The woman understands Jesus. The Pharisees do not. The woman humbly accepts the place that Jesus assigns her, even though she was an outsider. The Pharisees are insiders, but they won't accept anything less than the highest authority. The woman answers Jesus according to Jesus' own terms. The Pharisees want Jesus to come to their terms or not at all. See the difference and how these stories present a very different understanding? One is the epitome of faith and is a disciple. The other one is unbelief. It is somebody whose heart is against Jesus. And of course, Jesus does not stoop to their level. For him to do so would be for him to contradict who he is. And now, story number five. The disciples are on a boat with Jesus, and they've forgotten to bring bread. In verse 15, chapter 8, Jesus is cautioning them, and he tells these disciples, again, this is probably right after that incident with the Pharisees, Jesus, you know, that's in his mind, and Jesus says to the disciples, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. See, Jesus, does, Jesus knows that the disciples don't fully understand everything, and, and he knows that a little bit of the Pharisees' unbelief, if it sneaks into the disciples' way of thinking, it's going to ruin everything. So he says, watch out. Watch out for their leaven. Watch out for their teaching. And the disciples hear that and think, oh, he said leaven. Oh, bread. Oh, yeah, bread. Who brought the bread? We had seven baskets full of bread. Who brought it? Did you bring it? No, no, I had our dirty laundry. I thought you had it. Something like that. And Jesus hears what's going on and says, verse 17 there, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts still hardened? And listen especially to this part. Have you eyes, having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? And then Jesus goes on to talk about all the ways that he's provided bread thus far. The point is that these disciples have been with Jesus the whole time. They have front row seats to his ministry. And yet they don't understand They have eyes, but they don't really see. They have ears, but they don't really hear. They don't understand. They don't get it. Now, story number six. And after we explain all these stories, we'll wrap it up, and I'll show you what they all, how they fit together in a minute. But we got to get them all out there first. See, story number six, chapter eight, verse twenty-two. And here's where things will start to come together. Jesus and his disciples go to Bethesda, and a great uh, the crowds are there, and they bring out a blind man to him again. And very similar to how he healed the deaf man and mute man, Jesus brings the person aside and he touches him. He he pokes this man's eyes. He spits in the eyes. And then the most curious thing happens. Verse 24, the man says, I see men, but they look like trees walking. And then Jesus lays his hands on those eyes again, and the man's sight is fully restored. Now, bit odd of a way to do a miracle. We'll talk about that in a minute. But first, I want you to think about why Mark puts these two miracles right alongside the woman who gets it, the Pharisees who don't want to get it, and the disciples who are still a little dense. Why does Jesus put these two miracles, making, making someone hear and making somebody see, right alongside of all these other people? 
Well, the key there is looking back at what Jesus said in verse 18, chapter 8, to the disciples. You have eyes, but you do not see. You have ears, but you do not hear. Friends, spiritually speaking, not seeing, you know, we can function quite well without seeing or hearing in this world. But if you spiritually you don't see, and spiritually you don't hear, friends, that's a death sentence. That's a death sentence spiritually. Because the only, if, if your receptacles to receiving God's word are, 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 are hurt, are muted, they don't work, you're never going to get God's word into your heart. I could preach all day. I could preach for three days. Um, don't, not planning to. Uh, but if I were, and your heart was hard, your, your eyes didn't, your spiritual eyes didn't see, your spiritual ears didn't hear, I could preach for three days, and you would still come away saying, eh, don't really get it. Don't really want to get it. Not really interested in what Jesus has to offer. Try something else instead. If your heart's hard, and your, your eyes, spiritual eyes aren't working, nothing I can do to preach, nothing you can do to read God's Word, because you're not going to get it. And friends, if this is where the disciples are, it's, they're in bad shape. So is there any hope for them? Yes, there's hope. Because they have with them somebody who can make the blind see and make the deaf hear. They have a miracle worker among them. And, and the, the greatest miracle that's going on in these stories is not what Jesus is doing to the blind man and the deaf man. It's what the blind man and the deaf man illustrate about what Jesus is doing to the disciples. Jesus is working on their spiritual eyes and working on their spiritual ears so that they're going to get it, so that they're going to hear and they're going to see. Yeah, they're blind and deaf in this story, but that's okay because Jesus is with them. And friends, that should be very encouraging to us. And we see that the disciples begin to get it. Story number seven, chapter eight, verse 27. Jesus is going with the disciples to the village and along the way he asks them the question, who do people say that I am? And there's various answers that other people say. John the Baptist, Elijah, some say one of the prophets. And you have to understand, all of these would be a very high honor. We would, we would love to be one of those people in the sense that, yeah, that's, that's great. John the Baptist, Jesus said there's none more born among women greater than John. Except this puts Jesus as one of the greatest people who ever walked the earth. He's not unique. That's the problem with these answers. And then Jesus turns to them and says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, you are the Christ. And this is a huge turning point in the Gospels because this is the first human who has correctly identified who Jesus is in the Gospels this far. He's gotten it. Peter understands. Jesus had opened his eyes and ears, so he gets it. He understands who Jesus is. Well, almost, sort of. Because look what happens next, verse 31. Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And then notice what good old Peter does. Peter took Jesus alongside and began to rebuke him. Friends, this is what the Pharisees did. The Pharisees and Peter both are saying here, I'll accept you as Messiah, but only on my terms. And if you violate my terms, you're going to hear about it. And then Jesus rebukes Peter. Get behind me, Satan. How would you like to be Peter here? You go from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows. One minute, you're the first human to get that Jesus is the Messiah. Next minute, you're Satan. Talk about uh, he who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. It's a great fall. Now, in Peter's defense, 
the Messiah being killed just doesn't compute. I mean, the Messiah is the one in their minds who's going to lead the people to victory. A crucified Messiah is as good as a king with no authority. A teacher who's utterly ignorant of everything. It just doesn't make sense. It doesn't compute. But that's the problem. Peter's thinking in terms of what makes sense to him. He's not thinking on Jesus' terms. And Jesus lays that out in verse 33. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. In other words, Peter is trying to fit Jesus into his own categories rather than fit himself into Jesus' categories, which is exactly what the woman did. Peter sees, but he really doesn't see. He's still a little blind. And I think that's exactly why Jesus heals the blind man in the way he does, right? The blind man is partially healed. He sees, so we can't really say he's blind, but, but neither can we say he sees if he thinks people are, you know, ants, trees walking, right? And, and that's like Peter as well. Peter gets it, and he doesn't get it at the same time. And friends, we can probably identify with Peter here, right? Yeah, we get it. We see Jesus. We understand. We've trusted him as our Savior, but, but we can't. We, we don't get it as well, too. There, there are things that we get wrong. We're, we're like idiots sometimes. But the point of this is that there is a miracle worker among us. Jesus is among us, and he is making us see. He is making us hear. We don't have to despair when we're spiritual idiots. If we have Jesus with us, because he is the miracle worker who is making the blind see. This reminds me of another story with Peter. Peter sees Jesus walking on water, gets out of the boat, and tries to walk too, but then he begins to sink because he lacks faith. And I think when we read that story, we're a bit perplexed if Peter is a good person or a bad person. Is this a good example or a bad example? You know, Peter gets out of the boat. Yay, Peter. Then he begins to sink. Not so good. And, and, but if we try to judge Peter here, that's not the point. The point of that story is the same as the point of this story, that Jesus helps those who lack faith. That's the point. Jesus helps those who are weak in faith. You're weak in faith, you come to Jesus, and he helps us. How does he do that? By opening our ears so we hear his word. So we have ears to hear and eyes to see so we get it. And friends, if there are things that perplex us and trouble us, things we don't understand, don't worry. Yes, seek out help. Yes, try to get answers. But don't worry in the sense of despair. Because we have a Savior whose job it is, whose work it is, is to make us see. And friends, this gives us all of us a good bit of humility here. Some of us are further along in our theological understanding than others. And those of us who are further along must recognize that the understanding we have in no way comes by our own efforts. It's not because we've arrived and understood all this. No. It's not because we're smarter or better. It's all because of God's grace. God opening up our eyes and making us see. Opening up our ears and making us understand. That's what... what, uh, what Jesus did for uh, Lydia in Acts 18. It says, the Lord opened up her heart and she understood Paul's message. That's how you're saved. God opens up your, your eyes to see him. You would not be a Christian if it wasn't for God making you see what you didn't see before. And friends, if God started that good work in your heart, we can be assured that he will continue it. That's what he's in the business of doing. And then, 
we see this last story here that gives us a truth that, that we all need his help for. Look at uh, chapter 8, verse 34. Here's story number 8. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he, this is Jesus, said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. It's a hard truth, isn't it? Reminds me of what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said. When, a man be, when Jesus bids a man to come, he bids him to come and die. Why do we find that truth so hard to accept sometimes? Well, I think it's because we spend so much of our lives seeking comfort and convenience and trying not to suffer, don't we? That's why we take our vitamins and our allergy pills and why we, why we take good care of ourselves so we don't get sick, so we don't suffer. And yet Jesus is saying that being a Christian is all about dying to what we want and laying down our own lives and suffering. You know, we talk a lot about following Jesus and becoming like him, and and that's all well and good. But the New Testament has something very specific it means about being like Jesus, and it means to suffer with him. Jesus suffered, leaving us an example to follow in his steps that we too would suffer. And we don't have to look far in the New Testament to understand what that looks like, what our suffering with Jesus looks like. It looks like us loving our enemies. It looks like us praying for those who persecute us. It looks like loving one another well. It looks like being a servant of all. It looks like husbands loving their wives like Christ loved his, the church and gave himself up for her. It means willing to experience the scorn of being a Christian so that other people might hear the gospel and live. You know, it's interesting. You read through the New Testament and you see the, the ways in which we're called to suffer and they're all relational. It's all about doing it for others and with others. So, question to consider. Where does your love for others in the church cost you something? Or let me add too, if it does cost you something, are you willing to pay that cost? You know, an example of Jesus? Or do you do it begrudgingly, knowing, letting everybody else know exactly how much it does cost you? Are you willing to enter into one another's lives deeply? Are you willing to use your relationship with others, not just for fun or entertainment? Oh, this is a cool person to hang around. I like it. But are you willing to, to use those relationships to help one another grow? Are you willing to say hard things that the person might not like, that might not engender that person to love you more, at least not yet initially, but is good for that other person for their growth? Are you willing to be sinned against in a relationship and not give up? You know, the reality is that what we see clearly in the New Testament is that to follow Jesus means helping other people follow Jesus. So if you aren't helping other other people follow Jesus, you might say you're following Jesus, but this raises a very awkward question for you. I had a conversation with Steve this week, and we were both saying how we would love to see more people in the church wanting to be disciples. We'd love to be giving more of our time over to helping disciple people within the church 
who would in turn help others to grow as well. And part of the reason we have two pastors now is so that we can have two of us now giving up our time to help one another grow. And my challenge for you is that we would really need those two positions because we would have so many people who are really wanting growth and discipleship that our schedules would be full. So my challenge to you is to, is to you know, call us, or not just us, there's other people who are able to disciple you in this church too, but get on their calendar, get on their schedule, ask them, hey, can you help me grow so that I can help others grow? Well, you might say, but I can't help others follow Jesus because I don't know how to do that. To which I would say, yeah, and that's precisely why we have the church, so that we can pour into you, so you can pour into others. That's why we're here. You could say, but I don't have time to do that. Well, that's why discipleship costs you something. That's why you have to give up something to follow Jesus, and that means pouring into others. Let me close by summing up what we see about discipleship in these stories. Again, I think what we see here throughout all the, the narrative thread connecting all of these is that discipleship is all about the person of Christ. Think about how personal Jesus is in these stories. Consider how Jesus, with this parable, took the woman into his world. And then consider how physical Jesus was when he went into the world of the blind man and the deaf man. And we said these stories illustrate the fact that Jesus is there with us to do that miracle of opening our eyes, opening our ears so we can understand and see. And as we saw with Peter, it's not just enough that he opens your ears and eyes once. Oh, you're good to go. You don't need them anymore. No. The the part of what Jesus is doing in our Christian life is continually opening up our ears, continually opening up our eyes so that we see more and we see more and we see more. Discipleship is not a program. It's about a person. Following Jesus isn't saying, tell me what I need to do and I'll go and do it. Rather, it's about having Jesus with you so he can be working in your heart and helping you see and grow each step of the way. Remember in the beginning I told you two stories about two versions of discipleship. One that involved all rules and one that involved no cost. And guess what? Both of these views miss the the personal aspect of discipleship. The way the discipleship is person-centric, you might say. See, the the view that discipleship is all about rules misses the personal encounter with Jesus. It presents a false picture that, that to be a disciple is simply to strive hard or to work and diligently apply ourselves. It misses the end goal of discipleship as being in a relationship with a person. You take away the person of Jesus out of discipleship, and it becomes dull and boring and just hard, and you know, like, like military training, you know, athletic training, it's something that, that you don't want to necessarily do in and of itself. But discipleship with the person of Jesus makes it into a relationship. But then the view that sees discipleship as having no cost misses the personal element as well. There is a cost to our discipleship. We are called to pick up our cross and follow him. We're called to suffer. But why? That's the most interesting thing. It flows out of the personal relationship. Even the New Testament will use the word participation that we have with Christ. We suffer because Christ suffered. Think about it this way. 
there are lots of aspects of life that involve suffering, right? I mean, being a student, this is, I guess, exam time, right? Being a student involves some kind of suffering. Because why? You've got to learn a lot of things, and it's hard, it's not easy. But you do the work, and it pays off. An athlete suffers a lot of pain. Why? No pain, no gain. You, know, you work hard, you work your muscles, they grow, if you're doing it right, of course. You, it's just how it works. And it earns you something through the suffering. But the Christian life, suffering has just a different character to it. We suffer because Christ suffered. We suffer because being close to him brings us on the path of suffering. Not because it earns us something in and of itself, but just because we're with Christ. It's about the person of Christ who suffered. Friends, I need to interject here why Christ suffered so we can understand this. He suffered for our sins. And the Bible says that he, God created us perfect for a relationship with him and that God is perfect and we can't be in his presence if we are not like him. That is perfect. But yet we've chosen to go our own way. We've chosen what we want rather than what God wants. And this means that we deserve a penalty. We deserve God's wrath. His just anger is against us. But Christ came to earth, took upon himself you know, our human form, lived a perfect life that we were supposed to live, and then suffered and died on the cross, taking on himself the penalty that we deserve. That's why Christ suffered. He suffered for us, so that we might not experience, if we believe in him, might not experience that, that uh, being rejected by God, that penalty and wrath upon us. But no, instead, we would experience what he actually deserved, namely, eternal life. Christ was then resurrected. He rose again with new life, giving that new life to all who believe in him. That's why he suffered. And therefore, our suffering in the Christian life is somewhat of a paradox. Because what we're doing in our suffering is entering into participation with Christ at the stage of his suffering. But we have our eye on the stage of his resurrection. So that when we suffer with him, it is pulling us towards what happened after Christ suffered. Namely, that he rose again. And therefore, our suffering is not without hope. Our suffering actually turns into joy because we are sharing in with Jesus the same kind of thing that brought us salvation. And we're sharing within Jesus that first stage, namely his suffering, that lets us think about the next stage, namely his glory, which we will also experience. And therefore, the paradox ends up being that if we seek merely comfort and convenience in life, at the end of the day, we lose it all. But if we seek to deny ourselves and follow Jesus, that's where real life comes from. And Jesus said, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. The way to have real life is to have Jesus. With Jesus comes suffering, but also with Jesus comes glory. So friends, we have to face the question, what do we want our lives to be about? Do we want our lives to be about merely seeking pleasure, gaining you know, riches for us, having a comfortable life? Or is our life rather about being close to the person of Christ, which means pouring our life out like he did for others that they may too know about Jesus? Let's pray. Lord, we... We know that only the second of these is real discipleship. But we pray that you would teach us. Teach us to, to follow you. Teach us to long for you and love you.
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.